0: Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education at Monash University and here we talk with researchers in and around the faculty about their current reading, writing and thinking. So welcome to the final installment of Meet the Education Researcher for 2018. My name is Neil Selwyn and like most academics in the Southern Hemisphere, we're sloping off for a long summer vacation and we'll be back in business for March 2019. So before we sign off it seemed like a good time to catch up on what a few people around the faculty have been reading about thinking about and beginning to write about we've caught up with four colleagues for a brief insight into what's been getting them excited over the past 12 months so we start off with john lochran well known for his research into teacher knowledge john's recent reading tip is the work of the us philosopher gary fenstermarker
1: i've gone all the way back to gary fenstermarker's work on the known and the knower the knower and the known and it, it draws in all of the philosophical stuff about what is knowledge, because I care about teachers' professional knowledge, but it's a really, really fraught field because you have all sorts of arguments about what is knowledge impacting on the work. When you go back to Fenstermarker's work, he actually draws a really nice line of differentiation between knowledge as a sort of theoretical component to work and then knowledge as a practical component. And so it it reminds you of the theory practice gap and why often the universities are seen as the ivory tower and the school as the um, swampy lowlands, as Sean would have said. But because he explains it so well, you also begin to recognise again how sometimes academic debates, although interesting and valuable in academia, have very little impact on the actual work of teaching and learning. And because I know Gary, you know you, you also read it with the. You can see the look on his face, the grin every now and again, and also that philosopher's view of stuff. Why I've been reading that is because I've been trying to finish an article. I know I'm supposed to have one finished for this podcast, but it's not. I'm only about halfway through it on teachers' professional knowledge, and I'm making the argument that what their professional knowledge is 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 very tacit. There's nothing new in that. But they talk about their knowledge in terms of the activities they do in the classroom. So they talk about concept maps and they talk about using role play. They talk about the things they do. And it's underneath it through their pedagogical reasoning that you understand where their knowledge is. Well, that almost flies in the face of the philosophical view of what is knowledge and and how it works. So I'm trying to recast this argument by paying attention to the past and, and the arguments that go with it but actually to try and show that teachers don't operate in an atheoretical mode. It's just that they're not encouraged to talk about it. They're not encouraged to value or support it. And the busyness of their work means they have to have activities that work now in class. And so because of that concentration that they have, it really influences what they know, how they talk about it, and then how others interpret that. So although they seem to be really busy in teaching and doing stuff, actually there's an incredibly rich knowledge underpinning it that's never been fully explained because most people who explain this stuff are academics and they shift back into the philosophical and theoretical in ways that speak to an academic audience, not a practitioner audience. So that's where I'm at. That's what I've read. That's what I'm trying to do. Who knows how successful it will be? That's the argument I'm trying to put up.
0: Secondly, we catch up with Marilyn Fleer, who you might well know for her work in early childhood research. As she explains, Marilyn's recent work has been increasingly trying to make sense of how children do things with digital technology in digital environments.
2: It's it's a research paper by uh, Lorna Arnott, and the title of it is An Ecological Exploration of Young Children's Digital Play, Framing Children's Social Experiences with Technologies in Early Childhood. This particular paper was very interesting for me because it was, it kind of arrived, it was in 2016. So I'd read it before, um, but not closely. But this year I had a particular problem that I was exploring where I was looking at digital play and and what worried me was that in the digital play space there was um kind of a binary that was emerging sort of like a real world virtual world digital play ordinary play and so on and uh and and i could see how that's come about in the literature so i remembered this particular article by lorna because it talked about an ecology and i thought "Hmm, i wonder if there's something in there that'll get me thinking a little differently So this particular reading um, got me thinking because it looked at social relations between children. It looked at um, the whole area of um, the digital space, but trying to conceptualise it as an ecology rather than a binary. And so um, Lorna's paper was really superb for um, getting me to look beyond just the digital tool. Uh, and but the digital space becomes like a, an auxiliary tool for children. and um, particularly because children's minds, I know that from my own research, children's minds are way beyond their biological capacities So they can think in ways that they can't write about. Um, they, can, they want information that they can't necessarily access easily. And suddenly these digital tools and the accessibility of them, um, you know Google, Maps or Earth, um, Skype, um, the use of iPads and in, in um, you know as research tools, um, you know all of a sudden there is this space where children can say more, do more. It's, and to me it was kind of an amplifying effect. So uh, the re- the reading of Arnott's work was important for um, helping me come up with another um, way of conceptualising what I saw, and that's something I'm writing about at the moment.
0: So third, it's always been a pleasure to talk with John Party. He definitely reads a lot of books, and this year he's been getting back into the work of the urban sociologist Richard Sennett. So what can Sennett tell us about what it means to think and be a thinking person?
3: One of the best things and uh, most anticipated books that I read this year uh, was Building and Dwelling by Richard Sennett. And I say anticipated because in 2008 he wrote a book called The Craftsman, and then he wrote a few years later a follow-up called The Together. And the final book, which I've been waiting for, which is called Building and Dwelling, is actually about how we make our environments or build our environments and how we live in our environments. And the reason I was waiting for this book to come out is it is part of his Homo Faber series, which is about how we make the world and how we live in the world. And I was particularly taken with this project because the craftsman is a book that he wrote in 2008 to explain how people make things and by making things they're using not just their hands but their minds. And because my background is in technical and vocational education, I've always been really interested in how people think often that if you're not academic, you're really good with your hands, which is a cliche that is bandied around in uh, further education or technical education. And this whole work was to basically say, you know what, people who do things with their hands are really thoughtful. And uh, I think that comes from Sennett's own biography because he is a musician and uh, he understands that, you know, you do have to actually be pragmatic and practical and do things with your hand, but that also means that your hand thinks and that you are a thinking person. So it's a good sort of sociology and it's a nice way to think about sociology in terms of uh, not having a chauvinism about intellectualism and saying that basically intellectualism is a blend of both, the hand and the mind, and that's what I love about his work.
0: And finally, I figured that a great person to ask about inspirational reading might be one of the faculty's specialist staff from the Matheson Library. So Hannah Filton's recommendation should be of interest to anyone involved in the assessment of student skills. As she explains, Hannah's recommendation challenges the role that competition plays in student assessment.
4: Competition, education and assessment, connecting history with recent scholarship, and it's in assessment and evaluation in higher ed. So it was a journal article written by Robert Nelson and uh, Philip Dawson. So Robert Nelson is obviously here at Monash um, and Philip Dawson's at Deakin. They wrote this article about the history of competition and how that feeds into assessment types in higher ed and how maybe we need to challenge the idea of competition, so not remove it completely, but think about where it comes from and why we have it as uh, a part Of our approach to assessing skills development and ideas and recall and and things like that to if we reject some of that competition and we come at it from a different angle where we can encourage creative practice where the stakes aren't as high if we take some of that away can we enable the students to think more creatively and do things in a different way. And I liked it because it's not a new idea, but it's that reminder that sometimes we just make assumptions about what assessment should look like because that's how they've always been. And so it's nice to be reminded that you can try things and encourage students to do new things. So there you have it,
0: four education researchers, four different ideas, four different avenues for further thinking. See you all in the new year.